Welcome to the podcast that will bring the pages of Elephants and Tea magazine to life. Never heard of us? We're the only magazine written for and by the adolescent and young adult cancer community. We like to call everyone in our community our herd. So, welcome to the herd. Although this club is not one that you're glad you joined, knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and hearing from people who get it can really help. With this podcast, you can bring your herd with you on the go. Welcome to AYA Cancer Unfiltered, spilling the tea with our herd. Hi, Siobhan. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for chatting with me today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time and not only that, but for sharing your writing with the world at this point now. Um, The magazine is out and we are just so excited that you're a part of it. So thank you. Absolutely. Like I said, uh, it's my pleasure. It's just, it's an honor to be involved and be here. Great. So I have a lot of thoughts and questions about your article in the magazine, but before that, I would love to start off. And if you could tell us a little bit more about your own personal cancer experience so that everyone listening kind of learns a little bit more about you, um, that would be amazing. So what you were diagnosed with, what age you were, what your treatment was kind of like, um, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can go a little long winded. So if any time is too much information, just let me know. Um, but yeah, so um, I was diagnosed in June 2014, uh, when I was 24 years old. Um, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, specifically a low grade diffuse tectal astrocytoma. I know that's a big jumble of words. Um, So that's my diagnosis. Um, The staging was difficult, but over time and imaging, it's been pretty much determined that it's low grade at this point. Um, And so with treatment um, with brain tumors, I have learned it's all about location, location, location. Mm -hmm. Um, So unfortunately, uh, my tumor is literally 100% in the direct dead center of my brain, um, right above my brainstem. So uh, surgery was really not recommended to remove the tumor. Um, so my immediate treatments were just to reduce the hydrocephalus in my brain, uh, swelling, uh, building up of cerebrospinal fluid in my ventricles. Uh, that's just cause the tumor had grown large enough to block kind of like the flow within my brain. Um, so they did a, uh, basically two surgeries to try to address that. Um, the first one, the surgery was successful, but not the not the goal. Um, so my second surgery uh, was to place a permanent VP shunt that I now have. Um, it runs from my brain down my body and into my abdomen. Um, so I have that that's installed permanently. Um, once the immediate situation was taken care of, uh, I then had a five and a five, well, five and a half week uh, dual course of radiation Monday through Friday and daily oral chemo. Um, after, uh, that initial, that was kind of termed a, a zero cycle. Uh, I then did 12 further rounds of oral chemo temidar. So I'm now eight years and some change into my diagnosis. Um, I'm very fortunate right now that my tumor remains stable. 
Uh, I'm doing, so right now it's just kind of monitoring with imaging. I do MRIs uh, once every eight months. Um, back when I was diagnosed, it was originally every eight weeks. So that's just oh, wow. how, yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of MRIs, but that's just to say like how, because it's, you know, remained stable for this time, I've been able to take longer and longer period between imaging. Um, yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, what were your symptoms? Cause 24, I'm sure cancer was not like in your brain <laughs> thinking about that, that was what was happening to you. So did you have symptoms or did you feel, how, how did you realize, I guess, that you needed to be seen? Yeah. Yeah. So I know uh, cancer was not at the front of my mind at the 24 year old. Um, I had had headaches basically my whole life. Um, I never got diagnosed with migraines specifically or anything, but um, they'd been consistent. So um, that the week that I got diagnosed, I had a headache that began, I think it was the um, Friday before I got diagnosed. Um, and just the usual kind of like Excedrin didn't take care of the pain. Um, and when I say pain, I mean the worst that I've ever experienced in my life. Um, so, um, and I always tell people, you know, like I was totally new to the medical system. Like the last time I'd been in the hospital was when I was being born. So I just didn't know anything, you know? So like, I caught, like I went to an urgent care, um, and they just gave me a bottle of Norco and said, come back if it's not better, you know, in 24 hours, which was not helpful. (laughs) Um, so I was, I was, I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles, so I was lucky enough to have lots of options and, and found kind of a more specific um, head imaging or kind of a head space center. Um, and uh, they kind of listened to my symptoms and ordered me an urgent MRI. Um, you know, and it's always so funny what they say in the moment. The doctor is like, well, you know, it's probably like a blood clot, something, you know, it's probably not a brain tumor. Oh, literally <laughs> great um yeah um but so yeah the next day i had uh the mri they said you know you'll you'll get a call within a couple of days it was literally 2 hours later like they called me and said you need to go check into the hospital right now wow yeah. that's yeah that's a lot that must have been a lot to take and it, it sounds like you had to kind of advocate for yourself to even get that far, um, people were brushing it off just as headaches. Cause again, you were a 24 year old, so that's never the first thought people have. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really isn't. Um, yeah, I guess that, that is accurate. I had to start right from the beginning as advocating, which right. unfortunately a lot of young patients do. Yeah, definitely. So the theme for the March magazine is that the unseen challenges of survivorship. So I am asking all of the authors that I'm interviewing to share what is something that you wish people prepared you for, for life once all of the active treatment, the thick of it really ends? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's so funny how universal it is. Um, like I'm, I'm a completely information-based person. Um, so like once I had been diagnosed and kind of gotten, you know, out of the hospital and was going through treatments, I really did read a lot of other AYA accounts um, and tried to understand what others had gone through before me. Um, 
so I, I was aware, like I knew about this kind of like, you know, cliffs of abandonment that like, you know, AYAs tend to like talk about once treatment ends. Um, so I had like an idea to expect that, but like, of course it's always, it hits differently when it's you. Um, but I think, I think if, if at all possible, like I would have liked to be prepared for just how intensely I would think about healthcare moving forward. Um, like not just on my own, but like on a community scale, I am not a casual person when it comes to healthcare anymore. Um, and like, obviously no one could have predicted a pandemic, but, um, you know, healthcare and medicine feels really personal to me. Like the phrase healthcare is a human right just hits different. Totally. Especially when you've been through what you've been through. I totally, I, I think that's a great point to make. And, a very important one that um, needs to be advocated for mm-hmm. more. Uh, if you could tell your past self one thing, so maybe your yourself at twenty three, what would you say? Huh. Past wow. So past self even before diagnosis. Yeah, I think I want to know what would you tell yourself about life maybe Ooh, we're getting deep we're getting deep <laughs> early Siobhan <laughs> yeah. huh. shoot I have I thought I was thinking about what would I tell like my like fresh off the boat diagnosed like well, let's start there let's, let's start there so what would you tell yourself freshly diagnosed mm-hmm. with everything that you know now that you've been through yeah honestly I would tell myself to look into the social model of disability theory way sooner yeah, it's good and, advice. Yeah, I know it's, I know that's kind of a, an odd one. Um, but like, for me, I really struggled with like identity a lot after my diagnosis, like, including a lot of like imposter syndrome around like what labels I could claim myself and how to speak about myself, like, in a way that felt authentic. Because um, like, I didn't like, the, you know, I'm not really into the term survivor, like, we you know, when I was past, like, active treatment I didn't really feel like patient anymore but you know tumors still in there you know still have scans um so learning an alternative kind of model about how to think about illness and disability would have been would have been easier to to learn about sooner rather than later I think that that's a more common thing than you think because Mm. the whole idea of identity after going through something as major as a cancer diagnosis, especially at a younger age when you're kind of learning who you are to begin with and then to be thrown with that. um, Yeah, I think it's a common way that AYAs feel. So thank you for sharing that. And I think that that clearly would be helpful to have more insight kind of at the beginning to know, hey, even even if it you don't have information about like what you're going to do or where you're going to go in life, maybe even just knowing at the forefront, hey, it's okay that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Right now, like you're going to figure it out, take it a day at a time, but that that's like a normal way to to feel after going through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe that goes back to like your original question of like what I would tell myself. It was just like, 
things are going to go differently. <laughs> it's okay to look into those. And, you know, the, the rote path that we are kind of like, you know, taught that we follow through life can and, and will change. Yes, that's very well said. <laughs> to, to kind of be a little bit okay with going with that. Um, I don't know. I always go back to uh, a quote that I learned in my art history undergrad was just, um, you know, to be modern is to know what is no longer possible. And like, I think about that in the framework of like cancer and diagnosis and like to be able to move forward and continue to live with your diagnosis is to know that just, you know, the whatever past now it's not going to come out right, but just like, no, you're making you know, sense. I'm following the past you had imagined for yourself before cancer just doesn't exist anymore in that, in that exact way. Absolutely. And for a lot of people, me included, I feel like I am, was, I shouldn't say am anymore. I was such a planner, like very type a yep, very, yeah. And that, that for me, that lack of control and that kind of not knowing was super difficult for mm -hmm. me throughout my treatment. Um, but almost now looking back, I'm sort of grateful that I learned how to kind of chill a little bit, if that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of myself for that, that from what I learned from that mm -hmm. in that, you know, you don't know what tomorrow brings and you got to kind of be able to go with the flow sometimes. For sure. Yeah. I, I feel like much more black and white about like my boundaries, but much more gray about like, just okay, let's try this now. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. So well put. Black <laughs> and white about boundaries and about beliefs and what we stand for and stick up for and advocate for. But, yeah. but like the day to day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I definitely relate to that. I would love to get right into chatting about your article that you We're shared. Jewish. Yeah. So you, you talk a lot in the beginning of it about this idea of shared grief in the AYA cancer community. Can you just speak to that idea a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think illness is a really isolating experience. Um, I don't think I've ever felt so alone in my own body, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't matter if you have all the support in the world, you're still the one who has to get wheeled back into surgery. Like, you're the one whose body still has to process the chemo. Like, you still have to have the mental breakdowns. Um, so in that way, it's like, you feel alone in your grief in that, but, you know, and everyone's cancer experience is unique but we all go through this experience that's collectively known as cancer. And I think when you like get into the space of support groups or AYA groups or, you know, cancer events, like, and start talking with others, you realize that there are like way more or like really, really vast similarities between people's experiences. Yes. And that's something I definitely found when I originally found Elephants in Tea as a patient. Mm -hmm. um, that's what it was. It was reading, you know, my first thought, my hesitation at first was, okay, but all these stories are not 
breast cancer, which is what I had. Like, this is a different type of cancer. So am I really going to relate in a way? But the more I read, the more I realized what you just said is that it really, you take away the specific diagnosis and those underlying emotions, those underlying experiences are very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you brought up a really important point about how cancer outcomes vary drastically depending on lots of different demographics. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, I mean, this is a deep, a deep question, but in your opinion, how can we continue to improve upon this? Oh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's a nice, easy one, Lisa. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think... with that it comes it comes down to access and education and advocacy um you know none of those are easy things at all but like I'm like I said I'm based in like Los Angeles California um so like apart from my care which was at UCLA I had two second opinions like two second opinions from top rated teaching hospitals um on my treatment before I even like went forward with a plan Um, I had an AYA group that I could attend from the very start of my treatment. Like I had basically every privilege as a cancer patient like that you can have. And it was still hard as fuck. Like, Mm -hmm. sorry, sorry. You're good. I swear. You're good. Um, um, you know, but so like, that was my experience. And then I would go through AYA programs that I met like other AYAs throughout the country and their experience was like stunningly appallingly lacking in any type of social support to like to the point that they'd never spoken to another AYA patient you know before that time um like that's just like you know access in terms of like location and place and and you know um you know I mean there's there's so much like we can look at like medical racism and medical misogyny like it's so gnarly to understand just like how biased some medical professionals are to this day, including in education. Um, and like, that's a really, that's a really challenging topic for me thinking about the next generation of, you know, of like doctors and medical professionals. Um, like, you know, and then there's just even systemic equalities, you know, things that lead to like cancer alley in Louisiana, like, affordable and healthy food and food deserts like a lack of diversity and higher up healthcare decision making like these are all way difficult like things like addressing basic internal human biases and compassion like really hard things to address some are you know but i think those are all little steps that could that could lead to um you know improving some of um the equity and outcomes amongst patients. Yeah. And I mean, these are all, like you said, these are all very big and broad and, and deep um, topics. But I think step one is talking about them. Yes. That That's always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been happening a little bit more. Um, For and sure. More, and it needs to continue. Mm-hmm. But um, I think everything you brought up is, is definitely valid, very valid and all important. Mm-hmm. 
You had a line in your article that said, how do we transition the uneasiness of survivor's guilt into compassionate dialogues about long-term survivorship grief? I'm wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, So I've spent the last like eight plus years thinking about reading about researching, investigating cancer, like from every, you know, way that's accessible to me. And I still don't know what to say or how to react when someone gets diagnosed or has a recurrence, you know, like it is so tricky. Um, Like I almost feel like bringing the conversation back to what that specific individual needs in the simplest way like you know almost like they say to do in relationships like if you're having an issue like okay do you want like a passive listening ear or do you want an active problem solving ear like I think something akin to that might allow the space to open up for genuine empathetic conversation like from both sides yeah that's such a good point because everybody is so different mm-hmm. and how people you know re- react to even their own diagnosis is so mm-hmm. different some people go right away to support groups and want to be surrounded by others who are in the same position mm-hmm. some people avoid them like the plague you know <laughs> right. um until they can like mentally handle it so yeah i think kind of taking each each conversation if you will as a separate thing and and yeah being up front straight up asking someone right right you know just like honestly therapy <laughs> like yeah doing the hard work that it takes like to let go of like you know the guilt that you've survived in an inequitable environment like the idea that cancer patients even have something called survivor's guilt is so wild right um, Right. Like we've been through enough, right? Like why do we have to feel guilty about it now? But you do, we do, everybody does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, I think this transition to survivorship grief, like, you know, for those of us who do like are fortunate enough to live, like I've only recently kind of learned about like survivorship medicine, you know, and that's like, you know, that's, that's, you know, so you don't have to go in totally, you know, like with a blank slate to every doctor's appointment, you know, but this is, you know, they know what you've gone through, they know the trauma. And like, I think the idea of survivorship needs to, you know, transition into like grief as well. And like the chronicness that it entails. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Because if there's one thing, I think every cancer survivor and I know you said you don't love that term but anyone who's like past active treatment and and has been through cancer um I think we can all agree that it doesn't just end it's it's Mm -hmm. always a part of us there are lingering effects whether they be mental or physical um yeah so I I think that that's a great a great thing to bring up for sure yeah um, you had another line that you had, you had a lot of lines that stuck <laughs> out to me, which is a good thing. But um, this one said the AYA bond can be so strong and open, but I feel like nobody knows how to address the seismic shift that happens when one of us has a recurrence. And I think the idea of recurrence is just 
like you said in your article, a very difficult thing to bring up, a very difficult thing to talk about in the AYA community. Um, Do you have any advice to anybody listening who may be experiencing this right now? Like maybe they have a close friend that this is happening to or, yeah. Do, Do you have any advice? Yeah. You know, I thought about this a lot and I think I would try to acknowledge your own feelings um, and give space to them. Um, And I know it sounds simple, but like emotions around cancer and grief are like actually so intermingled and complicated. And, And like just being able to mentally and emotionally like and untangle one string of feelings, I think can help. You know, you say like, if you name it, you know, you can claim it, name it, you know, and then you can try to, or start to process and deal with. Um, But it's nothing easy. I have certainly learned that. I I do think that that, when you say it, it sounds easy, but I I agree, it's (laughs) not. I mean, addressing your own feelings though, that's definitely the healthier way to go about it. I feel like I, I definitely struggle with that. I feel like I, I'm such an empath that oftentimes Mm -hmm. I will almost kind of completely disregard my own emotions and feelings and to help somebody else. So I think that that advice that you just gave is helpful for me, definitely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it can be really hard. It can be hard. But I think, like you said, confronting how you feel, maybe not right in front of the person when you're told this information, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. but later on. um, But I do agree. I think it'll help you not only process what your friend is going through, but Mm -hmm help you process clearly your own deep fears and feelings that you have surrounding recurrence. Yeah. You know, cause that's what this whole piece was about is trying to be, you know, a good, like empathetic, you know, you know, not partner, um, but fellow patient, you know, to someone who is having, you know, a really challenging time without like bringing your ego into it or, you know, making them feel like they need to comfort you. Like, you know, so there's like grief, there's anger, denial. It's just like being able to just be like, okay, what, what is this actually making me feel like and go from there? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, you mentioned the phrase ignorance is bliss in your (laughs) article. And that I feel like is a very common thing that has come up across my, you know, four years now in the Mm -hmm. AYA cancer world. Um, but can you share how sometimes that really is the reality? Like Mm -hmm. why, like, can you just share a little bit more of the realities of like why that is a thing? (sighs) Yeah. I mean, it's all heavy stuff. You know, it's nothing really like nice and light and easy. Like, oh, I just didn't need to know that little like fact about nature. It's like, no, actually, like, I didn't need to know that this person is no longer here, you know? Like I'll, I'll be like researching some new topic or something or, you know, a new special interest and like there'll be a name and I'll listen to some of their work. I'm like, oh my gosh, this person has amazing ideas. Like, let me go look them up. And only to find out, you know, that in the last couple of months, like they died. Um, Like, it's just such a gut punch. And I mean, there's no way to avoid that. 
like, you know, so, so many people told me, people say weird things when you get diagnosed. They with really do, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, I would get a lot of, like, you know, just, like, imagine what medicine will be able to do five years from now. And I'm, like, I, like as if that matters to, like, right. you know, the newly diagnosed patient, like, right there in the moment, you know, <laughs> like... And, uh, you know, it's like same kind of thing with like new treatments and therapies. Like I'm all for everyone getting the newest and the best, um, you know, and the treatment. But like if some of us have, you know, had treatments that are now, you know, like maybe out of date or like there's new research, like we don't need to know, you know, like knowing that we made the best choice for ourselves in the moment that was available to us, like you know, going back and being like, what if, like, hindsight is such garbage to me nowadays, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, I had a very hard time, or I I guess I should say I made it a point not to read anything, learn anything about triple negative breast cancer, because I had already heard enough from my doctors about how horrific the statistics were. I did not need to hear any more about it. So I think that's kind of how I interpreted throughout at least my diagnosis and my treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, But I agree with you. I think there obviously, and it is incredible, the medical advancements that are being made every single day in the cancer Mm -hmm. world. But there does come a point, especially for you, you're, you're fairly, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say far removed. It's (laughs) clearly still like a part of you. I never want to downplay that, but (laughs) eight years in the medical community is a long time. So I can see how, how you feel that way and why you feel that way. I think it makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, just like, yeah, exactly what you said. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you mentioned in your article that you wish that we could talk more openly about survivor's guilt mm. and burnout and recurrence and death and all these deeper, um, quote unquote, you know, taboo yeah. topics. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering why or if you can share why personally you think we need to talk about these more. Because I agree, but I, <laughs> I would just love to hear from you. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um Personally, um, for me, as someone who has only in the last couple of years recently discovered my own autism um, and what it means to mask your truth for the comfort of others um, and the just like completely and thorough exhaustion and burnout that that breeds, it's, it's basic survival, you know, being able to talk about these uncomfortable topics. Um, you, I mean, just to, you know, relate it to other ideas, um, abuses in the Catholic church or domestic violence, you know, like we don't know the severity of the problem until people are brave enough, you know, in whatever context that means for them to be able to talk about it. Um, like I referenced in the article, um, like the AIDS activists, you know, they proc- like the phrase and the, the, that scares me getting tongue tied. Um, but, you know, they proclaimed in the 80s that silence equals death. Um, and so I think, you know, these topics of like grief and um, survivor's guilt, like 
burnout. It might not be a, you know, like the literal physical death that we're confronted with and, you know, from the actual, you know, medical side of, of our situation. Um, but it's a different kind of like, you know, emotional death, not to be able to share and explore these topics that are like very front and center in our lives as AYAs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's something that we pride ourselves on at Elephants and Tea is I feel like we we try our very best to listen to our community and to listen to what AYAs actually need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't shy away from those topics because we know that they need to be brought to the forefront of discussion. And I, I just, uh, first of all, applaud you for, for writing about it and for sharing more about your thoughts about it. Because again, that's how we get the conversation. That's how we continue the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may not be easy to have these conversations. It may bring about varying opinions, which with big, you know, taboo topics, it often does. But I think even that discourse is important. Um, So, yeah. So thank you for writing about it. And thank you also for chatting with me about it here. And hopefully, you know, sharing this podcast with the world will get people to realize that it's okay to talk about these things and that they need to be talked about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just back at you guys, you know, thank you for offering the platform and, you know, like being willing to open up the discussion on these topics, I think. Yeah. You're welcome. It's it's necessary for sure. Indeed. How did it feel to write this article? Mm-hmm. What what was your process? Yeah, um honestly it was hard. <laughs> um it's not a light topic. Um but it was really necessary for me. Um I I have a really difficult time identifying my own feelings. Um and so I find like writing it to be really therapeutic, like simply to understand myself. Um, And that was something I was really struggling with at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, A close AYA friend died um, in early 2020 or might've been late 2019. I don't remember. Um, But I was just, I was just inconsolable with rage. You know, this was like, you know, like I, you know, it was going on to my second hand of numbers of people who I've known who have died. Um, like I was just furious at like the lack of a healthcare system. Like why our pain isn't taken as seriously as young people. Like I'm just adding more and more names to my list of people that I knew. Um, and so I kind of like wrote a stream of consciousness of like why it's not okay for so many reasons. Um, and that's just really how it formed. Um, and then I just, as it inevitably happens, you know, more people that I know have had recurrences and I felt um, it, it was a topic that really needed to be brought up. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it or I hadn't, I didn't see any information on it. Um, and it just, it seemed to, um, fit really well with um the theme of elephants and tea which is you know the unseen challenges of survivorship 
Um, but, um, yeah, but I also have like no confidence in my writing whatsoever. So I do want to give a shout out to fellow AYA, uh, Michelle Myers. Um, she provided some really brilliant and professional editing services. So she really helped improve the piece. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like what you said about having it have been mostly stream of consciousness and then you go back that mm-hmm. I think that type of writing, though, is where you feel the most like release and more um, because you are you're truly like pouring yourself out onto paper. You're taking what is in your brain and just getting it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that for this article in particular, what came out of that is very valid and very powerful. Um, so I think. I just thank you for, for sharing your process. And it's always very interesting to me because everybody has a totally different way that they go about, you know, sure, writing sure. Yeah. Um, as a form of kind of like either sharing your story or as a form of um, partaking in your own healing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. What, what do you hope comes out of somebody reading your article or listening to it here on the podcast? <clears throat> Well, I always just want to give tools to people. Um, I never want to be prescriptive about, you know, oh, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Like, um, cause I know I don't like that. Um, so it's simply the form of like creative exploration or like informative solidarity, you know, like I just want to, I have no problem sharing my story whatsoever. Um, And so if anything, like I hope people get confirmation that, you know, their pain is real um, in whatever form it takes, you know? Um, And just that like, you know, the people you meet through cancer, whether in passing or a long years friendship, like they stay with you for your entire life. Um, And that's, that's on both sides, you know, like I've, I've never felt more fulfilled as an artist, as a person, as like a human being, as when like a cancer patient has reached out and said that like something I wrote or something I created like mattered or impacted them in some way. Um, And so I also want anyone with a hard diagnosis that it goes the other way, Um, you know, that you won't be forgotten in your community because I will always remember you. Someone will always remember your name. Ooh, I have chills. <laughs> and it's, it's true. I mean, it's the truth. I think that if we have one thing going for us as, as AYAs, our community is pretty strong. And I think that we're only getting stronger because mm-hmm. um, I think there are more and more resources and Unfortunately, but fortunately, we're finding that we're able to reach more and more people. So, you know, it's a it's a bad thing because why the hell are more AYAs being diagnosed? Right, there's more people. Yeah, exactly. But but it's a good thing because it just goes to the baseline of what we believe in. We don't want people to feel alone in what they're going through. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I echo everything that you just said. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit more about some of your um, cancer advocacy work yeah. that you take part in? Yeah, of course. Um, 
so if you haven't gotten it from now like I would just want to be a voice for patients in all like shapes and forms you know I just I I have no ulterior motive I only want the best and fairest treatment for the patient um you know so I don't come I didn't go to medical school I don't come from the medical side of things um you know I went to art school art history so um I've curated art shows. I've given talks to medical students and researchers um, at specifically at the uh, USC um, Norris Cancer Hospital. Um, I've been uh, I've been a part of their um, AYA PFAC, you know, Patient Family Advisory Council um, from its inception. It's relatively new. Um, and I've been its co-chair trying to help um, advising on hospital practices and um, you know, workshops and events that can really be beneficial to patients. Um, just in the literal sense, I, uh, I also uh, got my patient advocacy certificate um, from UCLA Extension during the pandemic. Um, and that was because, yeah, I really like, I really want to know from the medical side of things, how, how it works, you know? <laughs> Um, cause I, that'll, we can only advocate for, I always say, you don't know what you don't know. And if we don't know how, you know, the logistics on the healthcare medical side of things work, we can't advocate for ourselves as kind of like outsiders in that situation. Um, so it's just, that's a little bit of, I guess, how my advocacy comes, comes into play. That's it's a lot. I mean, you're doing a lot. That's amazing and so, so important. And I think, you know, you said that you don't have the medical background and that you're working to kind of learn more about it, mm -hmm. but you bring the experience and you bring the compassion and you bring the passion for change. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. So, mm -hmm. um, you're doing very important work. So good work and awesome job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, if somebody listening would love to get in contact with you would you mind sharing kind of the best the best way to do that yeah absolutely and they are more than welcome to I I love meeting and getting more people in my you know network um I'm most active on Instagram um you can follow me there my I'm at Siobhan Hebron um, I'm pretty easy to find because there's not a ton of Siobhan's out there with my name yeah. spelling <laughs> Um, but that's where I post all my visual work, my writing projects, um, any AYA events, uh, lots of dog and food pictures. Um, oh, yay. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, my website's up there too. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's the, probably the best, most accessible way. Excellent. I will make sure that I put, um, your Instagram handle and your website in the show notes so that people can find them easily as well. Awesome. Thank you. Of course, Siobhan. Thank you for taking the time and for sharing, for being vulnerable, for talking about these things that need to be talked about. I mean, I could go on and on, but <laughs> just thank you very much for, for speaking with me today. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute joy and a privilege. So thank you as well. Are you a patient or caregiver with something to say? Make your voice heard by participating in paid surveys, interviews, and online communities. Start talking to the right people. It's free. 
Rare Patient Voice accepts rare and non-rare diagnoses. In celebration of their 10th anniversary, their studies now pay at a rate of $120 an hour. Sign up today at rarepatientvoice.com slash E&T. That's rarepatientvoice.com slash E-A-N-D-T. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel a little less alone in what you're going through. Be sure to tune in next time, but until then, visit www.elephantsandtea.com for more relatable content.